This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Just eight months ago, Rebecca Gutierrez bought a home in Puerto Rico. She'd spent part of her childhood on the island and planned to retire there. Gutierrez wanted to be with her aging parents and her siblings. And living in Illinois, she longed for the lush tropical climate. Now Gutierrez is a refugee living with her niece in Colorado. And she's haunted by dreams of Hurricane Maria and her grueling experience. And Rebecca, welcome to the show. So much for having me. When did you realize that you had to leave the island? Well, I realized I had to leave when uh, my health was being affected, and then already health. Rebecca, we're having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Um, Let me try to ask again. Um, We're talking to you via your cell phone. Um, And and, um, can you tell me what it was like to ride out a storm like this? I would say it was the worst nightmare of the human experience. Can you hear me now? Yes, it's much better. Thank you. Yes, I think I had to raise my voice a little bit. I have never, ever, I had never, ever been in a hurricane. I had visited the island and even lived in the island uh, in the past for short seasons, like for during the school period when school was over, I would go back to Chicago where we were living at that time. But I had never, ever been in a hurricane. And um, while we experienced Irma, which was terrifying for me, but we suffered no loss, just maybe a tree that fell here and there on our property. But then two weeks later, we were astonished when the meteorologist said that another hurricane was coming. We really thought she was kidding. But then we saw, no, she's not kidding. This is real. We need to get ready. And so when she emphasized how severe this was going to be, and then the governor went on live with a team of of experts and people. And he said, we need to get ready. This is going to be bad. It was as if he were saying, a monster is coming. You better hide. And and did you board up your windows and, um, you know, do everything to prepare in that way? Yes. And actually, the Islanders super prepared. When we heard the announcement, people right away really, really started boarding up We have these emergency window shutters that we bought with the house, which was nice. And so we boarded them up. But we have a a glass and wood front door, very lovely door. And I was very fearful. And I told my husband, you need to board that up. And he boarded it up in a way where then we weren't able to come in or out of it. We were going to have to use our kitchen uh, aluminum door, which is prepared for hurricanes. So we, we felt safe. And, and tell me more about your situation there after the hurricane. You had no power, no clean water. We had no electricity. We had no running water. Uh, that was very uncomfortable. Although we were ready because we stored water, we have candles, we have uh, lanterns. Uh, I even have the solar energy little device that was even used in Haiti during the terrible situation, the earthquake that uh, the Haitians went through. 
I had ordered that when I was in Illinois because I knew that uh, a day could come where we would have no uh, electricity. Here, here's the thing with the infrastructure in Puerto Rico, where if you sneeze, the light might go. So mm. You have to be careful with that. So here we were without electricity. But when we saw the, the aftermath of what had happened, we knew that we were not going to have light for a long time. And what was it like, um, what was it like, um, you know, the possibility that you couldn't get fresh water? Well, there came a day, days after the hurricane, that we were running out of water and it terrified me. Of course, I didn't tell my husband Mm -hmm. and he was probably thinking the same thing, but he didn't tell me anything. We uh, said we have to find a resource. We need to go into town and find out who has water because if you go down to the to the town, literally, when I say down, you have to go down the mountain. It's like a 22-minute drive. And uh, usually the people there have water when the mountain, pe- mountain people have no water. So we were effective in doing that. We went to my friend's house. She had plenty of water. And we sourced up. And so we were fine. But then two days later, we had water, which was great. Eventually, uh, you said uh, you went to a grocery store that was up and running a few days after the storm. And um, it was a moment of joy for you when you were inside. What was it that struck you so much? The air conditioning, the music, the light, the people, the patience of the people. That was something that really struck me after the hurricane. This was such a terrifying experience that I believe it really changed the psyche of many people on the island. Uh, You know, we were thinking we were going to die. Many people, as I um, talked with people after the hurricane, we all took notes of what had happened and how we felt and what our experiences were. This was the common conversation of people. We thought we were going to die. We thought that the house was going to blow away. It was just so severe, so terrifying. Has it changed your your view on on life in general and how you, you know, I I really believe so. I I really do. I really do. I, I, I believe it has. I believe it has. I have to say that. I really do. Because I I really thought that I, if I didn't die because of the hurricane, I thought I was going to die of a heart attack because my heart was beating so fast and so hard. And at a given moment, I almost passed out, but then I, I sat down on the bed. And, of course, who's going to sleep during a hurricane? They shut off the light like at 1145 at night, I remember exactly. And then the wind started picking up and the rain and and then it started getting a little stronger and a little stronger and a little stronger by the time it was two o'clock in the morning it was fierce three o'clock it was a monster four o'clock it was the devil himself it was terrible Mm. it was terrifying it was loud very loud i had to cover my ears at a given moment my arms got so tired from covering my ears that i begged my husband honey could you please cover my ears Mm. so that i could rest my arms because I just couldn't take the severity of of the noise. I have very good hearing, so that was a problem. Right. And, and, you know, your father died just a few months after you moved to the island, and it was part of the reason you wanted to live there. 
And, and you thought a lot about him after you saw the devastation from Maria, that in many ways you were relieved. Is that right? Yes. I, 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 my father loved the land. He was an avid farmer. You know, he farmed his seven acres of land, which, of course, my mother is living on that property now, very 11 minutes away from my property. And the first thing, one of the first things I said was, oh, Pop, we used to call him Pop look what you missed, but I'm so glad you never saw this pop. It would have devastated you because Mm -hmm. everything on my mother's land is gone. Everything, every fruit tree, every vegetable tree, everything my father planted and his ancestors was gone completely. Everything, everything gone. And your mother's 90 years old. She's a native to the island and she's still there along with your husband and brothers. Um, You said your mother's lived through hurricanes before, but she's never seen anything like this. What made her and other family members stay and while you left? Um, What made her stay? Well, I don't, she's, I think she's afraid of cold weather and relocating because she could easily go to California. We have family that was begging us to, to go there, to take her there. I have a sister in Michigan. I have family in Chicago. I have family in Florida. There were many options for, and even in Washington, my son is in Washington. There were many options because, you know, many other elderly people left, have gone, and they continue. There's been an exodus in Puerto Rico and it's not going to stop. They're continuing. They're leaving. When uh, did you realize that will stay? Sorry to interrupt. I asked you this okay. earlier and we didn't hear you. But when did you realize you had to stay? I mean, you had to leave the island. I'm sorry. It was uh, two weeks after the hurricane. I realized I had to go because I, uh, you know, I suffer from asthma and my asthma condition has been so good that I don't have to take medication. I don't have to inhale. It's been so, I've been so steady, so great, but I was starting to wheeze. I was starting because we had to go down a slope into the back creek when we were running out of water to get water, at least to flush the toilets, uh, at least to uh, wash my hair even. I realize how beautiful your hair ends up after washing it with creek water and shampoo. Mm. And at a given moment, I even uh, used some of that water to bathe. Um, and it wasn't something I wanted to continue doing. And, and just to wrap up um, briefly, uh, is there any guilt you feel that you're here and your family's there? That was the initial thing that I felt as soon as I was on this side of the world. I saw that everything was working normal. I, I saw trees, you know, it's autumn and how beautiful the trees looked and how pleasant I felt and not so hot anymore uh, because it's really hot and humid. It's been hot and humid even after the hurricane and everything was normal and eating normal because now I had everything provided and yes, and I, and I cried about that, but I feel yesterday was the first day since the hurricane that I felt normal, if you will. Right. I have to stop there, but uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Rebecca Gutierrez is a refugee of Hurricane Maria. After the storm, she lived in Puerto Rico without running water and electricity. Gutierrez is now staying in Greeley.
Tomorrow, landslides cut off mountain communities in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. A team of scientists in Colorado is mapping the slides to help aid workers on the ground. Seismologists study earthquakes, but it turns out that stars have quakes too. The people who study that are called astroseismologists, and their research is getting a surprise boost from the Kepler Space Telescope built and operated in Colorado. Doug Duncan's just back from a conference in Italy where the new findings were discussed. He's director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us monthly to discuss space science. And welcome back, Doug. Thank you, Andrea. We'll talk in a bit about some other star news that came out yesterday. But astroseismologies, the study of the vibration of stars, why are these vibrations important? Well, it turns out that even with the Hubble Space Telescope, no star looks like more than a dot. Hmm. It can be really frustrating. You look at the stars, you want to know how big they are, what they're made of, but you can't see any detail directly. But now that we've discovered that stars are vibrating, we can learn so much about them. It's, kind of, it's a lot like bells. You know, even if, I, if we rang a bell for our listeners, even if they couldn't see it, they'd start to have a sense of, is it a large bell? Is mm-hmm. it a small bell? Because the pitch depends on the size. The way a bell ring depends on its density. And now that we know that stars are ringing, we can figure out how big they are, what's inside them. So all these details, we really are starting to be like the seismologists of the Earth, but of stars. And how did researchers figure out that stars might be quaking? Well, first, we learned that about the sun. So the sun, of course, is the one star close enough that we can see lots and lots of details. And decades ago, when astronomers measured the Doppler shift, which tells if something is coming toward you or going away, they found that subtly the surface of the sun is going, moving up and down and up and down. And in fact, it has a beautiful pattern of vibrations. If you could see this, and, and you can't with your eyes, but we can measure it, The whole surface of the sun is covered with different shaped and sized ripples. It's a little bit like those Tibetan bowls. You know, if you go to YouTube and you search for a singing water bowl, Mm. when when you vibrate the bowl, you see all the patterns in the water on the surface of, of the water. Well, we see similar patterns on the surface of the sun. And because they're different waves, it's kind of nice. It's like with seismology. Some of the waves and earthquakes stay near the surface of the earth. And some of them go all the way down to the Earth's core. And so by studying different frequencies of vibrations, you can probe different depths inside the Earth. And that's what came out in this conference is we're doing that with stars, with the different wave vibrations. We can tell what's on the outside of stars, what's on the inside of stars. Earthquakes are caused by movement in tectonic plates. And what exactly causes the vibrations in the sun? Yeah, well, it's certainly not someone running their finger, you know, right, and making exactly. it vibrate. Um, but it turns out 
uh, the outer one-third of our sun and, and of a lot of stars is convective. People have probably heard of a convection oven. What's right. convection? It just means the hot stuff rises and the cool stuff sinks. If you ever cook oatmeal, and all astronomers, when they cook oatmeal, they look very carefully at the pot, and you can see little cells of oatmeal rising, the hot ones, and then they go blurp, and then they go back down. And so that's a, if very subtly, that's a vibration which is constantly going. And so the convection in stars provides a constant vibration, and then the star starts to ring with the frequencies that depend on the structure and size of the star. Wow. Well, we could see that our own sun was vibrating, but we didn't know about other stars. And that's where the Kepler telescope comes in. Kepler was built by Ball Aerospace in Boulder. It's run by graduate students at the University of Colorado. Even undergraduates, oh, you wow. listening in. It's a great job. <laughs> it wasn't designed, though, to study stars. Um, what was it designed for originally? Well, Kepler is most famous, and it was designed to find planets around other stars. And some listeners will remember that back in 2012, the planet Venus went in front of the sun, and it made a little dip in the sun's light. So if you had a very, very precise measurement and a planet went in front of another star, you would measure that. And so Kepler has found lots of planets around other stars, and that's a wonderful discovery, but that's not its only discovery. I want to turn to a story that came out yesterday that's making a big splash. Uh, scientists at the LIGO Observatory spotted two neutron stars colliding. And first of all, what are neutron stars? So a neutron star is what you have left when a massive star dies. When the sun uh, gets ready to die five billion years from now, it'll swell up into something called a red giant star. And the outer part comes off, leaves a beautiful nebula, and the core left behind is a white dwarf, about the size of the Earth. But a massive star, where gravity is stronger, leaves behind uh, a neutron star, which is essentially so compact that all the space and all the atoms is gone. It's like solid nuclear matter. If you took one teaspoon of a neutron star, it would weigh as much as Mount Everest. I so mean, that's hard to It's hard to imagine, about. but it's going to get worse, listeners. So imagine taking something more massive than the sun, shrinking it much smaller than Denver. Okay, it's a couple of miles across. That's it. But it's not alone. It's got another neutron star. You know, half the stars in the sky are double stars. It's kind mm. of a surprising fact. And a few of them are neutron stars. And this rare beast was two neutron stars in orbit around each so other. So spinning around each other. That's right. And um, this type of collision has never been seen before. How did they detect it? So it turns out, according to Einstein that if you accelerate matter, you can make waves in the actual fabric of space. You know, gravity is very weak. Um, the other kind of waves, light waves, that's easy. You can have a flashlight in your pocket. You can make light waves, but you can't make waves of gravity. It takes something as big as the Earth to really start to feel the gravity, right? But if you could take something big like the Earth or the Sun and move them a lot, Einstein said there will be ripples in the fabric of space that will just go out through the universe. And the LIGO is designed to sense little vibrations in space itself. And, and it started vibrating. And uh, because astronomers have anticipated this, they kind of knew what 
what would happen if two neutron stars got close together. You see, imagine uh, if they're far enough apart, nothing happens. They just orbit, like, you know, Earth going around the sun. You don't notice anything. Right. But as they get closer and closer, if they truly radiated energy of gravity waves, then they lose energy. So what happens if you're in orbit and you lose energy? You get closer. And then you go faster. And then you lose more energy. And then you get closer. And then you go faster. So it's what we call a death spiral. You get closer and closer, and there's no way to turn back. And as those stars were getting closer and closer, believe it or not, try and imagine this. You have more than the mass of the whole sun in both of the stars, and they're both smaller than Denver. They actually got to where they were orbiting in a hundredth of a second. Mm. They're going around each other as fast as the blender in my kitchen is spinning, and they're causing these incredible ripples in space-time that we detected here on the Earth. And a professor at CU Boulder, John Valley, co-authored one of the many articles on this discovery. But once LIGO saw the gravitational waves, scientists, as you can imagine, ran to their telescopes to see what it was. Well, and they had a real challenge because... the, the vibrations, the gravitational waves, we didn't know exactly where they're coming from. The sky is big. So LIGO has two stations, one in Washington, one in Louisiana, and the Italians have a station. And by, by figuring out when each one started to vibrate, you could triangulate on what part of the sky it was coming from. And then telescopes throughout the world, thousands of astronomers leapt into action searching, and they saw in one galaxy a very bright flash an explosion. So they saw with their visible eyes, our visible, regular vision, where the explosion happened. And then we started to analyze the light from the explosion. And what's absolutely fascinating is all sorts of new elements were seen in the spectrum, but they're the rarest elements in the periodic table. So things like gold, uranium, platinum, this nuclear explosion apparently is the source of these things. Somebody calculated that there were 10 moon masses of gold in the explosion that was just produced. So that might sound like a lot of gold. It would be great for the fundraiser. But in the cosmic scheme of things, um, that's rare. And so the reason that uh, these elements are so rare is that apparently these rare collisions of neutron stars are the source of some of our rare elements. Wow. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Andrea. Doug Duncan is the director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us monthly to talk about space science. This evening, chimes will ring from the City and County Building in Denver. It's to celebrate the opening of the artist Ai Weiwei's exhibit in Civic Center Park. The chimes are new music written for the bell tower at the City and County Building. The music is also the city's latest piece of public art. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones has this story of the new sound of Denver. To be clear, this new piece won't replace the Westminster chimes. You know the one. It's a classic that rings through Denver's Civic Center Park every 15 minutes. This new melody is meant to highlight special occasions. It could be a sports victory. It could be a conference. That's Rudy Cherry. 
He's Denver's public art administrator. You know, whatever important event that we feel people need to know, it would be a way to express that. Like when the Denver Broncos win the Super Bowl, or when the city swears in a new mayor. Most people think of public art as a sculpture or a mural. So why commission music? To answer that, let's talk about how Denver pays for its public art. Cherry says it's all tied to construction. Some of the funds for the new commission actually came from the new roof that was put on the city county building about five, six years ago. Here's how that new roof paid for this new music. Say the city renovates a park or builds a rec center. Well, if that project costs more than a million dollars, 1% of the construction budget goes toward art for that site. When Denver put a new roof on its city and county building, that helped pay for new murals painted inside. When they were done, Cherry says the city had some money left over. Add in some extra funds from another project, and the city had $5,000 for more art. It's not very much, so we had to think a bit out of the box on this project. So Cherry and his team decided to use a signature part of the building, its bells. And they wanted to reach out to a different type of artist, musicians. One of the goals of this project was to have something that's uplifting. Cherry says they also wanted a cat that people could easily remember. More than 50 Colorado musicians applied for the commission. Finalists ranged from indie rockers to jazz players. In the end, they chose Denver composer Kevin Padworski. This is Padworski's piece, Pine Needles, from the University of Denver's Women's Chorus. Most of his previous commissions have been choral works. His favorite musicians include Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff and jazz pianist Art Tatum. And Padworski plays different instruments. Organ, piano, alto saxophone, soprano saxophone, flute. For this commission, Padworski sat near the bell tower and listened to the ambient noise. He'd write out melodies and sometimes even bring a keyboard to work on the music. He calls the final composition Ascent. It's a nod to the mountains and to Denver's growth. Anywhere around us, look how many cranes there are. Look how much is being built and all that new energy of new people. There's a buzz about being here. People are excited. In the past, cities used bell towers to let people know about significant events, like weddings, wars, and curfews. That's what they've been used for for eons, you know, is is saying that there's a message that needs to be rung out, and this is the best way that we can do that. So I think it is timeless. And Padworski says he hopes his new public art piece reminds people of that old tradition. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. The new sound of Denver will ring from the city and county building this evening to celebrate the opening of the new Ai Weiwei exhibit at the Civic Center Park. The Chimes composition was first released in August. That's our show for today. Thanks to Shane Rumsey, Brady McNellis, Matt Hers, Anthony Cotton, and Nell London. I'm Andrew Dukakis. Thanks for listening. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.